Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to On Brand with Rory Sutherland, brought to you by Alf Insight. Each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. Today, we're looking at a topic which is a favourite of mine, behavioural science. How can we influence consumers to make choices based on desire rather than pure logic? And joining us to discuss this, we have two guests, Gary Davey, the chief executive of Sky Studios, and Tristan Thomas, the vice president of marketing for Monzo Bank. Gary and Tristan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. So um, before we get going on our topic, Gary, you've, you've been in your current role since June last year. Yes. Tell us a bit more about it. Uh, so in my previous role, I was managing director of content at Sky. So I was responsible for programming. Um, <clears throat> but since June, um, I've been the CEO of Sky Studios, which is really a consolidation of all of our investments in original production, particularly drama and comedy. Uh, and it's a very exciting time. We've got a lot in production. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we've got, I think, 52 scripted projects in production right now, 20, 34 dramas and 18 comedies in various stages of production. So, yes, it's very exciting, although Sky Studios has one customer. It's this hungry beast called Sky. Uh, and the, the lovely thing about that is we've got a lot of uh, insight into the behavior and the tastes of our customers. And in our business, the, the customer really drives all our decision-making. So it's been a fascinating journey over the past few years. So Sky originally, of course, didn't produce much original content. It saw itself as a platform. And then I suppose its first explosive entry into the field was Chernobyl, wasn't it, to an extent? Yes. Well, well Chernobyl was certainly our, um, uh, our, our biggest hit um, internationally, although we've had two shows since that have outperformed it. Um, but yes, I think, I think it's fair to say that Chernobyl struck a zeitgeist that was an extraordinary thing for us. I mean, we had never won an Emmy and Chernobyl has won 10 Emmys. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. It's been a phenomenal thing. And, and, you know, that was a very good example of how complex the decision-making in, in this business can be, because I remember when it first came to us, uh, the idea was not terribly popular at first because a lot of people were saying, oh, my God, that's going to be miserable, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but having sat down and read the script, you know, you know, when you get through the 450-odd pages of the script, I just put it on the 
on the table and said, we have to make this thing. I mean, the script was so compelling. And Craig Mazin had, had been researching it for seven years. So the, the texture and the detail was just so compelling that it was, uh, it was the first time I've, I've ever read a script where I never got a red pen out at any point. I can just imagine, too, the initial hostility to the idea uh, in the sense that I, one of the things I recommend to people who haven't watched it is I said, whatever you do, watch it for 30 minutes. Because if you watch it for 10, there is the chance that that initial what you might call conventional reaction, my God, you know, it's set in Eastern Europe, <laughs> in the Ukraine, uh, you know, everything's going to look a bit dim, you know, dismal and grey, and then there's a nuclear accident just on top of it all. You know, how is that supposed to appeal to me as a way to spend 10 hours of my life? You know, I must admit, I spent the first 15 minutes going, oh, this is going to be pretty dark and heavy. Um, and then the extraordinary story then just emerges and it's, it's a wonderful case. I totally imagine that in that first kind of uh, reading or commissioning meeting, the general tone would have been hostile. But yeah, actually, it, it, it perfectly backed up my theory that the very, very best ideas don't make sense at first glance. That's absolutely true. Yeah. In, in the same kind of way that actually, funnily enough, with, um, uh, with, with Monzo Bank, I think the bizarre coral-coloured card <laughs> first happened as an accident. Is, is that right, uh, Tristan? Yeah, exactly. So we started in 2015 and the original idea was to create a card that was just so obviously a test card. So obviously not from a real bank that no one would take us too seriously and therefore get too upset if it didn't work. So we came up with this this sort of what we call hot coral, uh, bright pink card. And since then, it's it's just gone crazy. I mean, it definitely didn't work at the beginning, but people just really, really responded to the color. And uh, you now see that all out and about with people spending and uh, continuing to love it. Occasionally, we've talked about changing to a more um, sort of serious bank color, a, a nice dark blue or a gray or something like that. Uh, and that's caused a lot of consternation among customers. Uh, no, it's fascinating that because what's interesting about those very customers is they love the card now. Had you researched them in advance and said, what color do you think a serious credit card should be? Uh, no one really would have said, <laughs> you, know, something, you know, a slightly bizarre shade of pink. Oh, 100%. We've, we find that with so many things. There's a sort of balance of trying to work out what are the what are the features or ideas that we have that we want to test with customers and, and what are the ones that just aren't worth testing because we can guess what the answer will be and uh, it may not match up with reality. Um, I've long held, I suppose, that uh, you know, consumer desires, uh, first of all, I suppose I take the extreme view that in many, many areas, people genuinely do not know what they want until they see it and that they can't really accurately describe theoretical decisions in advance. Um, and consumer purchasing decisions are not really based on logical reason. We're driven by all sorts of unconscious mm. motivations. Do you think that's true, broadly speaking? Yeah, I think it ties back into this sort of, if before cars, if you ask people what they would want, they would want a faster, a faster horse. Uh, and it's very hard to conceive of a car before before it exists. And we saw the same with iPhones and um, a bunch of other examples across the industry. I think you can talk to people to understand the problems they have and test out some of the solutions you have, but they're not going to be able to give you those solutions. How do you implement that sense? And this is a question to both of you, in fact. How do you implement that sense of creating something that people will, almost against their better or initial judgment, will just really, really want? 
Well, if, if I could have a go at that, I mean, obviously, we we have an enormous amount of uh, information. We're sort of drowning in data. Uh, the truth is that most accurate data, in fact, I'd say all accurate data, is all historical. Uh, nobody's ever been able to show me any future data. It's all guesswork, which is what makes this kind of decision-making so exciting. And it's kind of what drives us into not obvious decisions. And you're, to your point at the beginning, Rory, about the difference between desire and logic, we do a lot of research, of course, um, and we track very carefully the behavior of all of our customers. And every couple of years, some bright spark in the tech industry comes up and says, oh, we've got the algorithm that's going to accurately predict the next hit. Um, well, I've been hearing that every two years now for about 36 years, uh, and it hasn't happened. Uh, the failure rate in my industry hasn't improved at any point in the whole lifespan of the industry. Uh, and, and the really big hits, as we were saying about Chernobyl, the really big hits are the surprising ones. And it takes a lot of courage sometimes to, to, to take a counterintuitive view. And I, I think that the, the, the connection between what I'm doing and what Tristan did with his credit card is absolutely spot on. There's no data or no research that would have said to Tristan, hey, do a pink card. But the counterintuitive nature of that decision is is brilliant because it it was something that was so different, so noticeable, and would certainly get talked about. So that talkability factor is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. What are people going to talk about? In the old days, we used to call it the water cooler effect. Um, you know, what were people going to be talking about around the water cooler in the office on Monday? Of course, now it's Twitter. But it's the same idea. How can you stimulate a conversation and get people intrigued or interested? Uh, and and that, that's really what we focus on is how can we get people engaged in a conversation? I was talking to someone fascinatingly in the, um, uh, uh, in the online advertising industry who had found that there was a surprising correlation between the number of things people tested and how successful they were. Now, you'd expect people who tested more things to be more successful. But the effect was disproportionate. And their theory was that when you actually had tested 10 or 12 things, some of the things you tested were actually quite silly. And it was there that the real successes were found. And I love your point, by the way, that nearly all the data comes from the past. And it's all true right up to the point where it isn't. If you think about it, <laughs> um, you know, my, my great point, all big data comes from the same place. It all comes from the past. Uh, you know, the Titanic had lots of reliable data on the likely movement of icebergs in April in the North Atlantic. But one data point, which happened to be one iceberg, basically proved everything they knew irrelevant. And in the same way, you know, the mobile phone industry would have had very, very reliable data the day before the iPhone came out, which said that people want their phones to be small. Yet suddenly, when you see an iPhone, all the rules change. First of all, the battery life was terrible. I mean, I mean, genuinely shameful. And I was with a bunch of Nokia people on the day that phone was released, and they were all laughing about how ridiculous it was to have a phone that didn't even last you until midnight. Now, the weird thing is people loved the phone so much, they were actually prepared to work around that. You can now, of course, pay extra for an iPhone that's bigger than the conventional iPhone. So the standard logic has, if anything, been completely reversed. 
and I think that that danger of essentially looking in the rearview mirror for your inspiration is um, is always present, particularly in a business climate where everybody needs to justify themselves. Because my great question about this bias is if you make a logical decision and you fail, the consequences for you are much less dire than if you make a risky decision and fail. Yes. The extent to which blame lands on you is much, much greater. And so anybody who's risk averse wants to do something conventionally logical. And yet the weird successes, I remember a year in, in the film industry where the biggest success of the year was March of the Bloody Penguins. I mean, you know, this was so crazy. And similarly, you know, things like Love Island, for example, come absolutely out of nowhere. All the more interesting because, of course, it had a very unsuccessful first season. Yes. And in my industry, we all love collecting our failures. You know, I, I think one of my one of my spectacular moments when I was, was in New York many, many years ago, and two young blokes came in and pitched to me this idea that turned out to be a multi-billion-dollar franchise called uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I mean, when they were pitching it to me about these four crime fighters who lived in the sewer and ate pizza and one's called Leonardo, that wait, 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 the exciting thing is they're all turtles. I remember looking at my watch going, this is really interesting, but I'm sorry I'm late for my next meeting. <laughs> I was at a very early internet meeting where someone explained to me the idea of emojis. And my reaction was, you know, you know, this person was clearly insane. And whereas I was getting excited by all sorts of kind of weird internet connectivity ideas, these people had really just basically jumped the shark. Um, and you're absolutely right that, that every, you know, every great thing. I mean, I'm still convinced, if, if you want a gift from me, I'm still convinced there's a major way to really innovate in news programming. I think that it's trapped in a, in a, in a kind of formula that the coverage of news and politics is ripe for a kind of Love Island reinvention. I don't know how to do it. If I did, I'd be banging on your door. But it's one of those areas where I'm absolutely convinced that essentially it's become absurdly formulaic and there must be an opportunity to do something differently. Yes, clearly, certainly broadcast television is going to have to rethink the way news is covered. Given what's going on on the internet and the almost infinite number of sources that an infinite number of people uh, are, are drawing their information from, Broadcast news is going to have to figure out a new way of, of, of repositioning the way these stories are told. Because, you know, this is where the whole fake news sort of anarchic world of information on the internet is such an interesting thing. I mean, on the one hand, you know, a great defender of freedom of speech and diversity of points of view. But goodness, there's a lot of nonsense out there. And it's... Um, it's something that, you know, no government can figure out how to regulate it, thank goodness, because, you know, government would be a disaster to intervene in something that's already messy. No government's ever made a mess any better. Um, so, yeah, that's a fascinating thing for me. Is to, you know, I agree with you, Rory. I think there, is, there will be some kind of revolution in, in, uh, in what we now know today as television news, because the political world is changing along with it. Uh, and, you know, the way traditional media covers it has, isn't changing along the way. It's fascinating. What I'm, I'm imagining here, moving the House of Commons during the refurbishment, moving to Love Island and, uh, <laughs> and we cover it all and vote, vote them off every week. I think it sounds great. Yeah, I, I worry about the visual aspects of that. 
Well, that was always said, wasn't it, that uh, politics is show business for ugly people. So perhaps that, that particular <laughs> thing doesn't work. Uh, and Tristan, uh, you're in a case where you are very, very overtly uh, seeking to disrupt uh, uh, you know, a very conservative, long-established industry. Mm. Uh, where do you look for, for sort of psychological inspiration in that? So the way we, we are a bank, but the way we see ourselves is as a technology company first that happens to have a banking license because it allows us to look after people's money and offer them overdrafts and loans and that sort of thing. So from a practical point of view, we are a bank, but from a from an inspiration and, and sort of vision point of view, I guess, we look to technology startups and, and then scale ups to understand how do we how do we really get to global scale? How do we positively impact millions and then hopefully billions of people's lives? And I think we see that much more, especially coming out of Silicon Valley. And obviously there are some downsides to that approach, but that ambition and thinking is where is where we try to draw inspiration from. I've got a very interesting sort of weird theory that the real value of the technology industry isn't entirely in technology. It's that what you have is a bunch of people with a completely different mindset confidently Mm -hmm. marching into a different territory and asking, why do you do this like this? Because it doesn't make sense to us. To get the the answer, well, we've always done it like this, or we've had to do it like this because. And I've often wondered if actually comparable to the tech industry moving into banking, you could achieve similar gains if, for example, people from the hotels and hospitality industry were moved to look after the railways for for a year. (laughs) Yeah, I think... In a way, from that, our competitive advantage, especially early on, was was naivety. You know, you, you go into your market saying, we're going to start a bank and we're going to try and figure out how regulation works. And having that just lack of knowledge, frankly, that enables us to ask those questions is what, what made sure that we could even put a bank on your phone, let alone the stuff we're doing today. What are you most proud of your biggest successes so far? I mean, Monzo, you know, is already, I think, a significant success. Um, what, what do you look for next? But also, what are you most proud of in terms of what you've already achieved? I think we've so far at least worked out how to actually involve customers in what we're doing. So, you know, banking is obviously an industry that's been around for forever and really hasn't changed in the last few hundred years. The biggest change was uh, web banking. And, and at that point, banks took your, your paper-based statement and put it on a, on a website. Uh, and then they launched mobile apps, and all they did was shrink down your paper statement. Actually, I think you're being a teeny weeny bit unfair there. I, I mean, I would argue that the <laughs> banking industry uh, did actually produce fairly reasonable. So your success is, in a sense, all the more remarkable because the banking industry faced an existential problem in that they realized that uh, the biggest branch network in the world was worthless if you didn't have a good mobile app in someone's hand. And they responded not perfectly, but they responded reasonably quickly. So you, you've managed to actually get people to uh, you know, ignore the conventional assumptions that there has to be a branch network. And so yeah, and, and, and actually talk to our customers. So they have been this crucial part of everything we've done. They literally suggest features for us to build. They come into our office to test the app out. They, they tell us when we're doing things wrong. And you get this feedback loop between the customers and the business that's on the order of a week or two. Uh, and people can see that change live in their bank app 
just a few weeks later. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's a lovely story I heard um about the Tesla which is that in the fairly early days, Musk used to invite early Tesla customers to kind of town hall meetings mm. where they'd all discuss what they liked and what they didn't like. And there was a debate in that town hall. Musk was sitting on stage, presumably on some sort of throne, with a few techie people with laptops sitting either side of him. And there was a very heated debate among customers about whether or not they wanted electric cars to have creep. Now, creep is interesting because it was never designed. It's just a feature of automatic gearboxes uh, in petrol engine cars that, or diesel cars that when you release the brake and the engine's ticking over, the car will move forward or backwards very slowly. Right. Um, and it was never designed in, but it was just a, you know, effectively a quality of automatic gearboxes that they did this. Now, a lot of people who drive automatics really like it because it means using only the brake, you can maneuver at very slow speed in a car park. Again, only using one pedal. Some of the other Musk customers didn't want creep because they said in an electric car, it was entirely inappropriate and they couldn't quite agree. And they had this little debate and then the discussion passed on to something else. When they left, Elon Musk just said, when you get back to your cars in the car park, turn them on and you'll have the choice whether you add creep to your car or not. Because I've done an over-the-air upgrade of all your vehicles. And from now on, you can choose. Now, that that receptivity and the speed of receptivity is a miraculous property, I suppose, of technology. And I think, and also the ability that technology offers you to give people a reasonable amount of choice. Because I think banks had a, had a mentality which was very similar to that of the civil service, which is that our job is to solve the problem for the average. In other words, our job is to be cleverer than everybody else and to impose on them from the top down what we believe to be the right answer. And of course, in a complex market now, you know, everybody has entirely different tastes about things. And the fact that the bank still had a kind of monolithic approach to problem solving, I think, was one of the great problems. I think one of the glorious things you can do is, for example, you can offer people a choice as to how complicated they want their mobile app to be. 
Yeah, and and the challenge there then becomes how do we find the right balance? Because you can go you can go too far one way, right? Where you create this sort of Frankenstein monster of a of a project or a product or whatever it is, and every single bit is customizable. And and then in fact, for a normal everyday customer, it is impossible to use. And so the challenge I think that we find is how do we how do we strike that balance? How do we choose which things are controllable by a customer and which do we take an opinionated view on and say this is how we think things should be done yeah we have we have a similar debate in in our business uh where that the whole idea of customization i mean in theory ultimately uh you know our 30 million odd customers in theory every one of them could have a different service uh the interesting thing about that is you're then shutting out that that community participation idea, um, quite apart from the complexity of the technology. So yeah, there's a, the, the, you know, we're still finding our way through that balance between customization and community. Mm. Uh, uh, it's it's a very complex one, but I, it will we'll always be in a hybrid world. I think where there will be some degree of uniqueness about services and products, but I think people, well. My current view is that people will always want to participate in some kind of shared experience. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I was amused to hear my 18-year-old daughter referring to what she called proper telly. She's at university at the moment, so she gets all her television through streaming. And she was talking about how she missed proper telly, which seemed like a very strange phrase. But the feeling, the knowledge that you're watching something simultaneously, I think there's also an aspect that if you look at television, it's a lean-back medium. And one of the things that always amuses me is people saying young people aren't watching television anymore as as if this is a cohort effect. My argument is, look, I didn't watch much television when I was 19 either. Hardly watched any, in fact. Okay. Once you get a job, you get home from the job, you're tired, you own a comfortable chair and a machine where you can basically point at it and say, entertain me. Okay. It's always going to have a value. Yeah, you're touching on a fascinating part of our world and that is... None of us know, well, we don't know yet what is going to happen over the next 10 years in this transition, because we're still living through a world where TV went from this great big thing hanging on the living room wall down to an iPhone. Uh, and I think there was a there was a long period in this journey where people on campuses were uh, we watch, they invented television on the laptop because none of them wanted to hang a TV on the wall and it'd either get destroyed or stolen. Uh, and so that's really was the beginning of a revolution. Now, what my theory is, uh, and there is this partly true, but also partly wrong, and that is that these same people, they graduate, get a job, have a couple of kids, and the first thing they want to do is buy a great big television to hang on the wall. Uh, but we don't know whether this transition that we're going through now is a lasting one. In other words, is today's 20-year-old going to behave like today's 40-year-old when they are 40? We just don't know yet. And the interesting thing we saw was, so we ran our first large-scale TV ad campaign last year. And so vast majority of Monzo customers today are between the ages of 18 and 30. Uh, and when we told the company we were going to run a TV ad, the, the looks on their faces was <laughs> sort of utter bewilderment. 
Um, because for techie people, relatively young, living in London, the idea of watching TV was was totally foreign to them. Um, and it turns out that, that people do still watch TV, including young people. And uh, we had a hugely successful TV campaign. And the demographics of people who signed up were almost exactly the same as our existing demographics. Young, upwardly mobile, urban-based uh, people who who do still watch TV. No, because you're interesting in a sense in that uh, your target audience will always skew young, I think, simply because getting people who have an established banking relationship to move gets harder over time for both practical and emotional reasons. Mm. You might argue also that, you know, you have established some, you know, by the time you're 40, you've established some measure of trust with your existing bank by dint of the information they have on your past behavior. So you're reluctant to throw away that kind of social capital and move move somewhere else. But but what is fascinating is you're, you're absolutely right. I, I can imagine the look of, I imagine, by the way, all those people also watch more television than they they realize. Well, yes, Love Island, Love Island is uh, a popular topic of conversation. So they watch that somehow. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it is fascinating because I jokingly said the only real threat to television um, my view is that television is a spectacularly inexpensive, in terms of cost per entertainment hour, unbelievably inexpensive way to uh, divert yourself. And I said the only real threat to, to television wasn't technology. It was that the government would ban comfortable chairs. That would be the thing that you really have to fear. Once you have comfortable Don't chairs... Don't give them such ideas. I know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't really put that out there. There'll be a huge tax on the, on the sofas. Yeah. But fundamentally, also, by the way, I mean, television, as we've seen, reinvents itself in multiple ways. I mean, not only have we seen the box set binge as a behaviour, uh, which is something that was almost unimaginable, I think, uh, 20 years ago, um, but also, I mean, I, I'm very keen on experimentation in areas like slow television. So one of the things I discovered having bought a 4K television is that it's kind of the quality of reproduction is such that it's kind of like a window. And when I'm working at home, I put on actually incredibly boring webcams. Mm. And so, I mean, if you think about it, the, the value of a television, I mean, I, I mean, you know, it could be used to display art for that matter. It could be, it could be used to for massive high excitement. But actually, we're discovering, you notice this, that, that most TVs, if you go to the hub, there'll be a, a log fire app. And um, so my, my view is that actually the role, the, the, there's huge room for experimentation. The other, the other way I always put it is that everybody always talks about trends, but there aren't really trends. There are vectors, by which I mean for every trend, there's a kind of counter trend. And it's very, very dangerous to look at one half of the trend without looking at the opposite direction. And so uh, um, I, I think with banking, I think there's an interesting question there, which is there's probably a gap in the market for being a really, really traditional bank. You know, with large, large numbers of human people, maybe communicating by video conference rather than face to face. But then, you know, with every opportunity, there's there's an opportunity, actually. This is what I said about the interesting thing about psychology and marketing, unlike physics, that in marketing, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Yeah. And that's and that's where you get these interesting developments where, um, you know, Amazon will go and open their own physical bookstore, having put every other physical bookstore out of business, because it turns out that people do actually want to be able to go in and, and touch and feel and, and see the things that they're buying. So, I mean, I, I suppose that, that the same applies in film, you know, that actually there's, uh, along with the action film, there's an extraordinary explosion in documentaries. 
Yes, that's that's a very interesting trend, and that's actually quite recent because you know they've always been there, um, but. I, I think it's partly too that the the quality of production is just escalating every year. You know, the the Japanese are now shooting their documentaries in eight K, and I tell you, the, the, to watch that is just amazing. And I just think the availability and the the, the declining cost of four K production technology has. Uh, uh, and the size of the kit as well has, has enabled a lot more access. Uh, and you know you can you can at home you can have professional grade 4K cameras and and edit the entire production on a laptop today. Now you know it's not that long ago the just the post production alone would cost tens if not hundreds of thousands of of pounds. So yeah, so there's been an opportunity to make documentaries and experiment with them with the objective of making them good enough to release theatrically. And I, I think we're going to find a lot more theatrical grade documentaries in production. That's something we're looking at very actively at the moment. It's an exciting field. I'm fairly sure if I'm right about this, that the Fire Island documentary was in the UK in the top 10 things viewed on Netflix last year. Am I right in that? Oh, I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't take much notice of the Netflix top tens. Uh, uh, th- this is this is data that is uh, only available to Netflix. So I not I really don't know. But the glorious thing you have with Sky is you have, uh, as you said, the historical data is both you. It's useful. It's probably useful in telling you what to do and useful in telling you what to experiment with. In other words, data can also reveal gaps in the market, in a sense, if you interpret it in the right way. Um, yes, we, we do a not lot of analysis. But, but I, I think the, the reason I, I love our, our business, being a pay TV business, uh, every one of our customers uh, has the ability to terminate their subscription with us anytime they like. Uh, so, you know, we're on trial every minute. And so you know, focusing on what we think they want next is something we spend a lot of time thinking about. But I, I think the other thing that makes us a little bit unique is is in my office, I've got this beat up old wooden stool, three-legged stool, and printed on the legs, I've got content, service, and innovation. And by innovation, I guess we would mean technology. And but what makes us a little bit unique is that those three things are actually integral into the DNA of the whole organization. And so responding to the customer behavior is, uh, it's, it's just like part of our daily lives. It's very interesting. One of, the, one of my senior executives in drama, uh, I, he's extraordinary. His first job when he left school was in one of our call centres in Scotland. And in fact, he was on the cancellation desk. Uh, And I can tell you when we're arguing about a production budget, he always ends up doing a rant about, is this the good use of the hardworking money of our our loyal subscribers? It's, it's, It's great. So, the, so the, the you know the customer is really defining where we go with with our whole creative agenda. It's very interesting. We we often get it wrong, but touch wood, uh, we the last couple of years, I think we've got a, a database and a and a and a method of understanding our customers uh, 
that is helping us guide the creative agenda a lot more accurately than ever before. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, also, I, I think Sky, by the way, has been, and this is very interesting, when you mentioned, Tristan, that there's always the danger that you can respond to every single customer request, so your mobile app becomes a kind of monster. I think that was something that almost happened a bit with eBay, which is that the problem with eBay is it responded to so many requests from so many people that a new visitor to eBay now finds the site, you know, almost completely unnavigable. And I think that Sky has been very clever there because you've always introduced new innovations fairly gradually, haven't you? Sort of one at a time. Yes. And A, I suppose you maximize customer appreciation because they feel that the service is continually being becoming a little bit better. You know, the you know, it's one one day picture in picture appears, or you know, uh, or you know, um, just you know, tiny little additional bits of functionality are added in a kind of drip. And one of the great things about that, of course, is it, it's massively better for consumer comprehension. If you add six things simultaneously, they learn to use one of them. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. And what's interesting is we, we find all the time there's huge numbers of our subscribers who aren't even aware of a lot of the innovation that's already available to them. And we, and we sort of educate them very gradually uh, because, you know, we've got a very wide range of customer types. And yeah, well, the, the shock of the new is something that we manage very carefully. It's brilliantly done. I mean, just any any shocks or surprises we should expect from Monzo without obviously revealing anything confidential. Um, where do you plan to go next? Well, I think we've discovered having sort of started with tackling personal banking that actually it's even more complicated and confusing for businesses, especially small businesses if you're starting up or you're you're running a sort of five or ten person business. And so over the course of this year we want to really explore that and work out how do we provide that same Monzo simplicity and, and support with your money, but do it for businesses where it feels like it's even more broken. That's uh that's a tougher ask, isn't it? It's probably fair to say. Well it, it I mean it goes back to that trust point, right? From the beginning it um the, the level of trust you need for your personal bank account is quite high, but the level of trust you need to put your business's money in to a bank account is significantly higher. And over and over again, we talk to businesses of all of all sizes and scales, and and that's the biggest blocker for them at the moment, moving tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds across to what is right now a mobile app. It feels very, very unnatural. Uh, and so as part of that, we'll, we'll build out a web version and, and sort of take people on the journey much more slowly than, than forcing them to switch immediately. There may be an element where um, uh, I, I often wonder this, and this, this goes back to uh, you know, my interest in behavioral economics and psychology. I think there are certain businesses, for example, a state agency, where the amounts of money involved are so huge that actual disintermediation and the removal of human actors might prove psychologically impossible, more or less. Mm. That, of course, one role of humans is to be repositories of shame and blame <laughs> because machines are immune to blame and immune to embarrassment, social shaming, and so on. And that <laughs> there's a certain value in having a human estate agent. Bear in mind, the person you're buying the house from is probably moving out of the district. So, so having someone locally whom you can bad mouth, you know, even, even if only in theory, probably poses some sort of value there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and probably the same for your bank manager. I mean, my other question is sometimes I think Silicon Valley and tech gets a bit ideological in that it hates humans. 
you know, it effectively sees a human as an opportunity to create unemployment by replacing them with an algorithm. And I've, I've often been fascinated by the fact that Japan, which is in many ways the most advanced country in the world in its adoption of technology, actually has a lot of technology, but a lot of people. So if you go to a Japanese bullet train station, there will be a huge bank of fantastically sophisticated machines for people who want to order their ticket automatically. But there will also be about five staff bowing. I don't require the bowing, by the way. I mean, that's not necessary. But there will be some extraordinarily helpful staff on hand to help anybody who's confused. And I, I started to see some of the limitations to trying to make everything technologically, you know, uh, dehumanized. When I, I was at Dublin Airport and there was a, a someone who'd won the Nobel Prize for economics was having a problem with the self-check-in machine. And I started to think, well, actually, if you can have a Nobel Prize and you find it difficult to attach this sticker to your bag, uh, I think we can safely say that the rest of the population don't have much chance either. And I think the interesting question is whether that's an ongoing thing or just a, a function of where we are at with technology today. Um, I think Silicon Valley especially has a tendency to assume we're further ahead than we are. And so then you end up with these situations where uh, it either doesn't work, you know, there's nothing worse than getting talking to a chatbot when you're trying to get customer support. So in a sentence, or if not a sentence, a short paragraph, uh, what are your thoughts and hopes for the year ahead? Well, I think one of the exciting things that we've done is we've just announced our ambitions to go full uh, net zero carbon in the next 10 years. Uh, and along with that, I'm about to start construction on Europe's biggest um, studio production, f uh, film and TV production studio. And it will be a, like a showcase of sustainable um, production technology. Uh, and what's fascinating about it is the extent to which our customers and our audience are coming along this journey with us. I think this is a very big issue uh, and really, really proud that we're sort of taking a leadership position in it. It's all the more important because, of course, television and screen entertainment is a major part of what you might call the dematerialization of the economy. In other words, you can grow GDP by creating value psychologically through entertainment without necessarily needing to increase the consumption of material stuff. Yes, so exactly. Yeah. It's a, um, the possible, I mean, I think they should get rid of VAT on things like Sky subscriptions for the very reason that if you can entertain and amuse yourself and contribute to the economy in a way that has a very low impact, uh, why on earth that should be taxed uh, versus material consumption? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, we, we, we were... Uh, carbon neutral uh, from about 2006 uh, and to be able to get to a point where we think we can be net zero carbon and be generating thousands of new jobs is to exactly to your point Rory that's the future of all industry. That's fantastic Tristan what about your year? Well I think the the year I'm looking forward to is probably something slightly foreign for the two of you, but as we move from being a, a growth business that is is venture capital funded into starting to drive significant revenues and working towards become a profitable company. So we're, we're finding an interesting challenge in taking something that consumers have been getting for free for, for many years and, and enjoying a lot. And that's contributed to our growth to starting to charge for some parts of it and, and bringing on board new bits that we will charge for and working out how we communicate with customers that, that that's going to change and and bringing them on that same journey um and 
we've we've had a few a few mishaps and a few false starts on that but i think for this year it'll be uh, exciting to see how we go about that i'm generally having worked for many years on american express i'm in favor of paying for financial services because i think it fundamentally and subtly changes the mentality which is that it changes you from being a supplicant to being a customer and it also changes the mentality of the organization which serves you yeah if they're essentially making money from you in overt, transparent ways rather than behind the scenes. Exactly. You can either take a sort of Facebook or Google style model where, where the customer is the product or you build products that customers actually pay for. And I think that comes back to, to Gary's point earlier about pay TV, that when you have that model, your your incentives are much more aligned with the, the happiness of your customers. That's fantastic. Yes, and, and the, the, there's an exciting piece to that story too. And it, it sounds obvious, but when you think about it, it's quite intriguing. And it's very difficult to value something that you're not paying for. <laughs> yes, that's a beautiful point, which is I've, I've always noticed actually that consumers don't get much pleasure from the consumer surplus, do they? <laughs> it's only when you actually pay close to what something's worth that you really understand what something means to you. Indeed. Well, that's been a fabulous discussion. Gary Davy and Tristan Thomas, thank you immensely for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this episode of On Brand. This podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. For more information on powering your business growth, just visit the website alfinsight.com. Our series is produced and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision, And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then maybe give us a like. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Rory Sutherland. And until next time, goodbye. Remote working isn't the future. It's already here. But staying well connected to your co-workers is essential. Wherever you're working, you can all now have a virtual seat at the table with the award-winning Meeting Owl. Their 360-degree smart video conferencing camera recognises and focuses on any speaker with exceptional audio and video. Join Owl Labs in bringing teams together for better work at owllabs.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.